Um, today we are continuing in the letter from Paul to the apostle to the church in Ephesus. And so if you have that Bible, turn to the book of Ephesians. Also, what I want you to do right now is turn, uh, earmark, put a, you know, your wife's hand in the market, whatever you do to mark your Bible, because we're going to go at some point to James chapter 4, and I'm going to read a big section of scripture there. And so just to help out with speed and getting us all there, I want to go ahead and encourage you to turn there as well. Um, today we are talking about what it means to be united in Christ. What does it mean to be united in Christ? Um, inside of the book at Ephesus, if you look at chapter 4 verse 1, which we covered last week, you can go and listen to that sermon online. I would encourage you to do so. Um, Paul has transitioned inside of his letter. He does this quite often in his letter writing. This is the way in which he presents arguments. He will state doctrine. He will state, uh, you know, deep doctrinal truths. He does this in the book of Romans all the way up through chapter 11. It's just truth after truth after truth after truth. This is what God's done. 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 And then he makes that transition in Romans chapter 12 into therefore, and he offers your body as a living sacrifice and he gets into the conduct of life. He has done the exact same thing inside of the letter to the Ephesians. The first three chapters that we've spent the last five months on here at Mission has all been about what God has done. That this is who you were, but look at what God has done. God has made you son, God has made you daughter, God has made you heir, you're adopted, chosen, elected, predestined, all of those beautiful, beautiful things that you are the literal inheritance of Jesus and of God, that one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're going to show up and God's going to be like, boy, go get your bride. She is here. It is time. It is ready. And so Jesus is away right now, currently preparing a place for those of us who are in Christ Jesus and who are part of the bride of Christ. And so when we see this, and as we talked about last week, um, it's, it's just crucial for us to understand who we are in Jesus before we can begin to practice. Paul will say it this way, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, and that term walk inside the Old and New Testament is in a reference to your conduct of life, how you live. Because you are saved, because you are a son, because you are a daughter, because you are a babe in Christ, if we want to do that today, all of those things, there is, if it is really, if Jesus has really and truly arrested your heart, there is fruit from that. True Christendom does not lay dormant in a person's life, but it will produce fruit. It will grow. The pursuit of holiness to be like Jesus, to get to God, to be with God is the delight and joy of those of us who truly believe. And so Paul is, is saying those very things, walk in a manner worthy, that if you are in your identity is found in Jesus, then there again is a way for us to live. And our works, we understand this because we are gospel driven and biblical, is this, is that our works are fueled 
by the first three chapters. They are fueled by what Jesus has done, and we cannot lose sight of those things. Everything that we do, every obedience, every imperative, that means command inside the New Testament, you and I don't get to pick and choose which ones we are obedient to, but we're held to, accountable to, all of those imperatives. And so Jesus is going to help us to understand, as he did even in the Old Testament, before he ever gave the law, what did he do? He released them from bondage. We often forget that. The law was simply based, its foundation was on grace first. I'm going to deliver these people. Then I'm going to tell them how to live. Same thing in the New Testament. You have been saved from sin, Satan, and death, the bondage that you deserve, that I deserve. Jesus in his grace has redeemed us. Then he gives us the New Testament commands in how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of that is fueled by grace. Your works, brothers and sisters, your obedience, as we're going to learn over the next six months of the rest of this year, is, is learning to be obedient in the details and the mundane of your life, that God is as much work in, in you biting your nails than you walking on water. That God is involved in every aspect of the true believer of their lives. And so today, as Paul continues in this idea of explaining conduct, listen to what he says in verse 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul is going to tell us, notice, he doesn't quickly go to external activities. Paul is still dealing with the heart. We could actually say that Paul is going to give us here this morning that to walk worthy, to have a life, to have a conduct that is reflective of our identity in Jesus really begins with an inward attitude. We need an attitude adjustment. Because without an attitude adjustment, if you have kids... You want to give them one, right? It causes issues inside of the home. It causes disunity when there is a bad attitude present, all right? The same thing happens within the church. When there are unbiblical, ungospel-centered attitudes, it's not reflected of the conduct that we have inside of Jesus, okay? And so Paul is going to give us very quickly again this morning kind of three attitudes if we are going to pursue the person and work of Jesus and we want to be maintaining this unity that God has given us. What does Paul know? As he says in the book of Acts, before he leaves the church at Ephesus, hey brothers, I want you to know that there are going to be false teachers, false converts, they're going to be people that are going to come here, false pastors. They're going to come here, and they're going to try to divide the church. For the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about what this means to be unified in Jesus and come to this understanding at its root. There is an attitude that you and I are to have if we truly are saved. So the first one that we see here is the idea of humility. Humility. Within paganism, um, the idea of humility was something that was greatly frowned upon. 
It was driven by arrogance. It was driven by pride. And so to say for a person to be humble, that was to equate kind of weakness. And yet Jesus comes as a humble peasant man and lives and calls us, brothers and sisters, to likewise be what? To be humble, not prideful, not arrogant, not about self, but to be self less to be about other people, ultimately the person and work of Jesus. One of the commentators said it this way, humility is restraining our sense of entitlement. Got any kids with a sense of entitlement? Little side note here, they learned it from us, big kids. Restraining our sense of entitlement to be the focus of the people's care, of other people's care and attention. By submitting ourselves to others with respect in order to promote their interest above our own. Okay? We see this illustrated in all different sorts of relationships that we have here on this earth. We see this even, uh, this example, as we'll get to next week, even in the picture of the Trinity. As Jesus submits to the Father. And as the Holy Spirit submits as well, though they are in perfect unity and equal and in relationship with each other. Um, C.S. Lewis is often kind of paraphrased, but this is a great way of looking at it as well. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. All right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Everybody get around somebody who has low self-esteem, just kind of Igor, you know, moping around. They're just terrible to be around. They just kind of have this, I hate myself. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like this. You know what that is? It's called false humility. It's actually arrogance to be that way. We often think of arrogance of thinking, man, I'm, I'm the goat. I'm the greatest of all time, and you're not, so I am better than you. But the opposite, but is equally sinful, is this mentality of low self-esteem. We as Christians should have no self-esteem, high or low. We walk in Jesus we walk in humility. We walk in a desire to serve, to wash other people's feet in worship and honor to the Lord. We think less of ourselves, meaning not that we're terrible, but that we don't spend all of this time with rented space thinking about us. Anybody else have a problem with that? I think a lot about me. I think a lot about me more than I think about you. All right? And Jesus is saying, that's a problem. That is the problem. That's what's going to cause disunity within the church is everybody walking around. Because here's a secret. I am more deeply in love with myself than any of you. Okay? And when that becomes godlike, when that becomes dominant, then we see disunity in our homes, with our kids, and in the body of Christ. The second attitude that we're going to get this morning is the idea of gentleness. Being gentle is not being weak. If you're a man in this room, I want you to write down this book. One of my favorite books that was handed to me by Richard Carwile, my discipler, um, inside of college, he handed me a book by a guy named Stu Weber. And as I was trying to learn how to be a biblical man and to see what that looks like, I was grasping for anything and all resources I could possibly get. And he handed me this book by Stu Weber called Tender Warrior. Tender Warrior. Stu Weber, Tender Warrior. 
And I, I love this book, um, if not just for the content that is located inside of it, but the very title itself. The title alone is a picture of true gentleness. Okay? The man is a warrior. I get this, I love these epic films, Gladiator, Braveheart, Saving Private Ryan. You get this picture of just this, this guy that's broke, uh, you know, just kind of bruised up, broken, scratches all in his body. He's been in the foxhole. He's been fighting the enemy, which is a good and right fight. But it's not that he walks up out of the foxhole unscathed, but no, he's, he's got a limp, he's got a bullet wound, he is, and yet he is able to be aggressive in the right fight, but he is able, when he walks into his home, to pick up his child and to hold it. He is able to get alongside of his brothers, and, and we have a tendency is that our love language as dudes is to pick on each other. Sorry, it's just kind of what, how we function as guys. And, and we get this picture of just this kind of yelling, trying to motivate. Imagine the coach yelling at his football team. I want to clue us gentlemen into something. You can be a warrior. There is a place to be a warrior. As our society is trying to feminize men and not make us warriors, I want to encourage you through biblical truth. Be a warrior. Jesus is coming back riding a stallion with a sword in his hand and a tattoo on his leg. He's a warrior. Okay? However, don't bring that business home with the same attitude. See, a, a tender warrior is able to motivate his brother, get in his face, maybe use some stern words to motivate and encourage. But the way in which a dude talks to a dude, he should never speak to a woman that way. He should never speak to his daughter that way. Okay? He has to learn when do I press in? When is it time to be warrior? And when is it time to be tender? When is it time to be gentle? It's the guy that is covered in his own blood and the blood of his comrades who on his way home sees flowers and picks them up and walks into his wife and hands them to her. A tender warrior, a gentle warrior. This is not weakness. It's not us being self-seeking or being a bully, but it's through compassion that one learns to engage, encourage, love others the way they need to be loved, not the way you need to be loved, all right? Major problem in most of our marriages is that key fact right there, is you're trying to love the other one the way that you best receive love, and it's causing problems in your marriages. The third attitude that we're going to get this morning is the idea of patience. Listen to what he says, with all humility, gentleness, and with patience. Patience is going to help unite us as believers in Christ. Gentleness is going to help unite us as people in Christ. Humility, this attitude of humility, is going to help us be united in Jesus. And patience is especially important in regards to church unity. Patience is this pursuit, get this, 
to be slow in finding fault or in being critical or rebuking the sins of others in the church. It is, it is fighting the, the drift of arrogance that, that you have, but specifically toward the immaturity of other believers in the Lord. This is one of the reasons why we need the body of Christ. Um, is, is that every one of us in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, and even if you're not, is that you have blind spots. And we can see them. But you cannot. And yet we get this picture of walking arm in arm and being very, very patient. And I want you to know, this is a major struggle for pastors. Is we get frustrated with the, the, the seemingly slowness of the congregation. And then I'm, I'm encouraged when I go back to the Old Testament and you see Moses walking around in a circle in the desert. And I think, six years, we've come a long way. Right? That's a way big difference. But you have to understand what was God doing in the desert. He was sanctifying those people. He was cleansing those people. He was preparing them. He was even judging them, weeding out the unbeliever in hopes that the true remnant of God would enter into the promised land. But man, can't we get easily frustrated with other believers? Sometimes I see some of you do some things, and I'm just like, why in the world are you doing it that way? Don't you know that my way is better? You can get to A from A to B a lot quicker if you'll just shut up. And I know that's a bad word, kids. Don't use that, okay? Please forgive me, parents. Hush your mouth and just do what I say, okay? Now, do you taste the arrogance in that? Do you taste the lack of humility in that? The lack of patience? Now, do we need to walk alongside of each other? Yes. Yes, we do. We need to love on each other. We need to show each other blind spots. And, but here's the thing, is that the Bible tells us as pastors that we need to pastor the flock that is among us. And I wanna, that means this, don't pastor a future flock that may or may not exist, but love your people right where they are. Parents, husbands, wives, do not love a future version of your kid. Do not love a future version of your husband or wife, but love the one you've got right where they are. Sharpen each other, yes. Press into each other, yes. Lovingly guide, nudge, get at the shepherd's hook, prod and poke just a little bit, but you got to know when to be warrior, ladies too, and when to be tender, all right? He walks in with a briefcase from work. Let me tell you, that is not the time to unload on him. It is not going to go well for you, all right? But even within the church, being patient with people. Everybody in here has bad days. Every one of us. Guess what, parents? We, if you're gracious and loving and gospel-driven in your marriages, don't you kind of give grace to your husband or wife if they're having a bad day? Especially if they just let you know, hey, you've not done anything wrong, but I'm just having a bad day. I need lots of grace today. That's going to go much better than quiet trying to not talk about it, all right? But, but ladies and gentlemen, this is something I need to work on being convicted of. Guess what? Kids have bad days too. Teenagers have bad days too, all right? 
Ava has one every time she wakes up in the morning. It's a bad day until about 9 o'clock. Okay? Todd's Carby's laughing because he's got one of them too. All right? Hey, what have we learned though? We have to be patient. We know. Laura knows if I've not eaten correctly during the day, I am a hangry man. Hangry. All right? I am rude, mean, upset, just ticked off at the world, and it all revolves nothing around what she has done, my kids have done. It revolves around the idea that I have not eaten in a healthy manner or at all on that day. But how does that happen? Being in relationship with people, being humble, being patient, being gentle. It's, it's saying to each other, hey, we, we got this. Hey, man, are, are, are you having a bad day? I, I love you, brother. How, how, sister, I, I love you. Can I pray for you? How can I walk with you? I want unity, not disunity. Something within the church that will often be reflected when there is a lack of patience is prideful, opinionated, aggressive, ambitious critique of those in the church and its leadership. We must be very cautious of that. We must be very cautious not just toward the leadership, but toward each other. Because as the scripture would say, we must be very careful to be quick to see all of the wrongs that is in everyone else when they have just mere speck in their eye and we have a, a tree growing out of ours. So what must we do? Take care of the own, our own log. Then go to the brother. Then go to the sister. We've got to be patient in, in looking at all of these sorts of things. There's a place for evaluation. There's a place for conversation, even biblical critique. But these conversations should reflect the attitudes that we've previously talked about. They should reflect humility. They should per, uh, reflect gentleness. They should reflect patience. All of these things lead us to what? Bear with one another and eager to maintain the unity and peace. This is our, our heart's desire. It happens not just assuming things about each other, but believing the best for each other. Um, Pastor Justin, I didn't ask for permission on this one, but I think we're cool. Um, Pastor Justin, you should pray for your pastor. He, he struggles mightily with uh, migraines that are just absolutely um, debilitating to him. And I have no comparison to that because I don't think I've ever had one, okay? Um, and we always have this conversation because sometimes I'll walk into Hope House and I'll see him or he'll walk into to church and I'll see him and I'll just be like, he doesn't even have to say anything. And I'll be like, bro, what's wrong with you? Oh, man, I'm okay. Got a migraine. Bro, go home. Go home. All right? Do we need him here? Yes. 
Okay, but when we're in relationship and there can be patience and, and gentleness and just knowing each other, that even when we're having bad days within the church for the promotion of unity, that we get to know each other so well that we, again, when we see a brother or sister and they spout off off the lips, all right, or they say something smart eloquently, or they have an attitude that just rubs you the wrong way, that one, you can show them grace in that moment. And that doesn't mean that you don't need to come back around and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, what's going on? on. There is a time for that. But do you think the best of the person sitting on the pew next to you? Do you want their best? Gentleness, humility, patience, all of these truths are so important within the life of the church. Many of these attitudes, if they're not seen in the life of the church, will lead to these things. Division, gossip, church hurt, splits. Um, this will often lead people to, to skipping from church to church to church to church to church to church to church in hopes of finding just the perfect one. I'm always blown back by people that it's like, hello, my name is Eric Baker, and let me tell you all the ways that you've been doing it wrong. If you simply do it my way, I mean, am I the only one who understands that I am a much better coach from my recliner than John Calipari is? I'm a much better coach than that brother will ever be from the comforts of my own home. I am the dude pacing back and forth. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. What is going on? If he would just do this, it's called defense. Pass the ball, right? I think I know so much from where I am. And yet being in the game is totally different than the experience from my living room. It's so important for us to not get caught up in division, to not get caught up into slander, to not get caught up into to gossip, but may we be caught up in the person and work of Jesus. May we be caught up in the gospel where it plays out in the mundane, in the details of even you and I's relationship. Now, turn with me to the book of James. James is going to highlight um, this idea as well. I want you to be encouraged this morning. I hope that you find this encouraged. Most of the letters inside the New Testament, guess why they were written? Because there was division in the church. So James, the brother of Jesus, writes this letter. And inside of that, beginning actually in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, excuse me, I'm going to read a big section of scripture here, and then I'm going to illustrate it to us, hopefully by slides. Do we have slides? We'll hope they work. All right, here we go. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meek in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Keep going. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, 
that your passions are at war within you? That you desire and do not have, so you murder? You covenant and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel? You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your passions. Number four, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Man, what a, what a statement for social media today. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil of a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor. So within the church, again, there is this divisiveness that has a tendency. It's constantly trying to cause the church to implode. He is addressing the same sorts of things that Paul is addressing at the church at Ephesus, that there's quarreling, divisiveness. Again, false teachers are coming. A false gospel is also coming. And yet, James says that there are two different types of wisdom, that there is God's wisdom. Hey, this is the way in which God wants you to live, your conduct of life, all these sorts of things. And yet there is an opposite to that, an antithesis of that, and that is the, the wisdom of the world. So we must ask ourselves this question is, is, is your life marked by characteristics of being in God's wisdom or are they marked by being in the wisdom of the world, which leads us to diagram number one. Sorry, we don't have that cool TV right here. If I was a hip pastor, we'd have it and I could be like, ah, see, so I have to do this. All right, so look at this triangle. It's the first one. That's the last one. Here we go. All right. So the goal. What is the goal of all of this? Again, do not forget your identity is in who? Let's, let's come on. Your identity is in who? Christ. It's in Jesus, all right? So the goal of all of your life is to get to who? To Jesus. To be with God. To be with Jesus. To walk with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, as well, to be like Jesus on this planet. That is the goal. This triangle, let's imagine that this represents your passion, your declaration, the pursuit of your life, the conduct of your life. And inside of that is godly wisdom. We learn from these passages that there's humility, gentleness, that there is patience, love, and peace. And, and those aren't the only attributes of God's wisdom. That's what all of these other dots represent all the other imperatives, all the other commands, love your neighbor, give to the church, um, all the other one another's and commands that we see inside of Scripture. That's what all of these other dots represent. Now notice what is outside of God's wisdom. 
the worldly wisdom. That's the way in which the world does things, okay? Now, if you'll notice this bottom row down here, it's hard for you to see. They kind of all look like the same shade, but these are men and women of every color imaginable. We've learned inside the book of Ephesians in chapter 3 that when Jesus came, died upon the cross, was resurrected, that the, the wall of hostility between the nations, between the genders, between people, has been kicked down by Jesus himself, that he has removed it. And so if we can look at this picture, this is the church. This is the membership of the church, of the local body. It's... it's there's diversity there. There is beauty there. There is appreciation of gender and roles. There is appreciation of every color inside of the book. See, our God is, is, is always to pursue after God. We want to be with him. We want to be like Jesus. Inside of the triangle represents everything that you are inside of Christ and everything you are to do inside of Christ. Okay? So if we were to look into a healthy church, this is what it should look like. Slide two, maybe? Ah, <laughs> yes. All right. So again, what is the goal? Everyone is individuals no matter male, female, child, young, old, wherever you are, that these white lines, if you'll work with my illustration here, is all of those people inside of that healthy church are doing what? They're pursuing the same things. They're all running the race toward who? Jesus. This is who he says we are. This is what we get to do. This is our delight and our identity in a healthy church all of its membership are all pursuing as fast as they possibly can toward the person and work of Jesus. This is what the church should be like. Everyone is pursuing obedience. So imagine a church where everyone is consistently praying, giving, reading scripture, making disciples, cultivating the gospel, uh, cultivating the gospel in their marriages and how they parent. They're living as missionaries, whether they're stateside or overseas. They're humble, they're gentle, and they're patient. Look what happens as we pursue James 4, 8, as we just read, says, draw near to God and he will do what? Draw near to us, okay? Could you draw near to God without salvation? No. The Bible is very clear about that. No one seeks God. However, brothers and sisters, if Jesus has saved you, then you can draw near to him, okay? You're responsible for drawing near to you. And what happens as you pursue Jesus, as you read, as you pray, as you fast, as you give, as you share the gospel, as you make disciples, as you love your neighbor, as you love your enemy, all these things that we get to do, we get near to God. He gets near to us, but also notice what happens. We get closer to each other. We get healthier in our relationships. We get healthier as the body of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is supernatural unity that you and I get to maintain. Our obedience, our pursuit of holiness is not and should not be begrudging duty, but something much greater, a labor of love. 
a labor of love. So what do we mean by that? How many of you guys, let's, let's raise your hands. I, I promise no snakes or Kool-Aid will be thrown at you if you raise your hand. How many of you have ever had a job that you can honestly say that you love? Look at these hands. Now, keep your hands up. You need double time it. Touchdown, okay? In, in these things, are there, are there days that are difficult? Yes. Days that are hard? Yes. Okay, you can put them down now. All right. All those sorts of things. But all in all, when you look at the great scope of your job, you can honestly say, I love what I get to do. Man, that's me as a pastor. I love being a pastor. But when I get called out in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. to go into a hospital room and to see a baby that was born prematurely and died at birth, and they've swaddled that child, and they're talking and singing to that child and, 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 and just stroking its hair, asking me if I want to hold this little baby that will fit into the palm of my hand. I don't love that. I don't love that. That's tough. That's real. I've done that. By God's grace, he empowered me to be able to be in the ministry of presence with that family. I didn't love that day. But in the great scheme of things, when you look at the whole work, man, I love being your pastor. I want to be here till I die. I don't want to die in a hospital bed. I literally want to croak out going like, Jesus! I mean, fall out dead, all right? Pastor Justin, just roll me over, keep going, call, take up an offering, have communion. All right, there we go, okay? Y'all deal with me later, all right? I mean, that's, that's what I, I pray. I love being your pastor, but there are some tough days. But I love, for you who get to love your jobs, man, grace and peace to you. That's a wonderful measure of God's grace, is it not? That you get to get up every day and love what you do. That's awesome. So you understand then that in the midst of difficult days that there is a labor of love. It is still work, but you love it. Moms, another way of illustrating this, that this is not from begrudging duty, but this is out of a labor of love that we pursue Jesus, is moms, you get this. How many of you moms have adult children? Okay? You got adult children. All right? And she's, let's say the lady, your daughter, and she's married and she has an amazing, tall, dark, handsome, ball-headed, bearded husband. All right? She's one of the lucky ones. And yet your daughter becomes ill. And, and, and mama, you know what that call is like to get it from your adult child. And, and that little whimper over the, the call is, I'm not feeling too good. I'm, I'm sick. I really, I really need some, some medicine. While her husband's like looking at her. Okay, but she's calling. Who's she calling? She's calling mom. She needs medicine. She needs that soup. She needs that concoction of whatever she does and makes in order to take care of her baby. Now, they're both adults, but that mom isn't going, ha, I can't believe my daughter called me. See, that's begrudging duty. She's not going to say, where's your husband? She's, she's not going to say, man, you're a grown adult. Can't you get up and do it yourself? It's called Campbell's, right? She's not going to do that. That's begrudging duty. What does she do? 
She walks across the yard, because she lives next door to us, and she's got soup and meds. Laura will say things like, man, I just need my mama. You get labor of love. Why do we not get labor of love in regards to our relationship with Jesus, though? See, some of us in this room right now are thinking, man, this is a heavy yoke that is being placed upon us. Not if it is a labor of love, brothers and sisters. Not if you are truly in Jesus. There's nothing more greater in your day than the time with your head in the book. On your knees. Serving, giving, loving. Husbands, future husbands, Mother's Day is not nearly as special to your lady if this is the only date you treat her special and appreciate her. She doesn't want your obligated love. She doesn't want your love for her to be a checklist or your love to be shown to her only on her birthday or your anniversary or Mother's Day affections. She wants them daily. As your love grows older, you desire to serve one another more and more and more and more. Why? Because as you grow in love, as you pursue God, even in those things, what is going to naturally happen? When Laura and I first got married, she used to ask me to take out the trash, and I would act like a little immature little boy. 20 years of being in relationship with each other, I, it is second nature. Boy takes out the trash. And she thinks that's amazing. She's like, mmm, take it out slower. <laughs> and I want you to know, I think that is the biggest load of honky you've ever heard. I do not, when she's vacuuming or dusting, I'm not over there going, mmm, I love the way you dust. But buddy, she see me packing that bag, I got some swagger. I mean, I'm like, ha ha, I could pack two. Right? I don't get that. But as we've gotten older, as we've matured, as we've pursued the Lord and invested in our marriage, man, that is a beautiful thing. I want to take out the trash for her. All right? I, I want to do things without her having to ask. Why? It is a labor of love that I did not have in my immaturity, but I do have in my baldness. Jesus, pursuit, longing for, we get closer together. Because no one in the church or outside of the church merely wants to be on your daily checklist. I love my kid today, chick. I love my husband today, chick. No one wants to be on your to-do list. What we want is to be a labor of love. Please get this. The pursuit of holiness and obedience is not God. Obedience, pursuit of holiness, is not God. But what does it do? It reveals God. 
I love what John Piper says about the Bible. The Bible is not God. The Bible is a window that enables us to peer through to see the grand nature of whom God is. And yet, if you're not being obedient, if you're not pursuing holiness, if you're not working your way toward Christ's likeness and who he is and living that out, guess what? You will have a, a bad caricature of who God is. And it's much better if we're pursuing all of those things together. Again, we are obedient. Why? Because we love Jesus. Though through obedience and our affections are stirred, we want to be more obedient because we see more of him. Our temptation is to make Christianity a checklist. The danger, please get this, the danger in all of that we're going to talk about in regards to sanctification, holiness, pursuit, obedience, all those sorts of things, the danger of trekless Christianity, it is because it becomes Christ, or excuse me, the, the danger of checklist Christianity is that it becomes loveless Christianity. We become Pharisees who check the box after box after box after box. Brothers and sisters, may we remember this morning that the Pharisees were much better at obedience than you and I are, yet they did not know God. They checked every box. Any of you got the Old Testament memorized? Yeah, you need to sit down. Right? Any of you guys pray hours in the day? You better sit down. Except Miss Cynthia, and she's with the kids. All right? It's not checklist Christianity because, again, it becomes Christless and loveless Christianity. The goal here isn't to make little Pharisees running around. No, the goal here is to get to God, to be with God. Right now, you've been breathing, hopefully, this entire time, and you've not been thinking about breathing. It has simply been happening inside of you. This is how obedience should be. It is our first, it becomes what was our second nature to not be this, becomes our first nature. It's a supernatural breathing that takes place with us. We simply want to be obedient that this is our God, this is our Father, look at what he has done, and so therefore we want to offer our lives as living sacrifices. Many of us want to be with Jesus, but we don't want to be like Jesus. But Pastor Eric, some days I just don't feel like it. I'm simply going through the motions. I'm, I'm doing what is right because it's, quote unquote, right. Brothers and sisters, man, I know that struggle. I'm often right there with you, but I want to encourage you with this quote from a pastor named Matt Chandler. He says this, I'm going to do what is right, what is good and obedient to God and pray, that's the key term here, and pray while I'm doing it that eventually my heart will one day catch up with my brain. But if you're not doing the praying part, I want you to know you've turned Christianity into checklist Christianity. It's Phariseeism. But sometimes we don't feel it. But all the time, well, we're, we're still called to be obedient. And what we need to pray is, God, reveal to me, why is my heart not in this? Why do I not want to get up today? Why am I using every justification not to go to MC this week or to not give or to not make disciples or not to be missionaries or any of these sorts of things, but to ask the Lord, Lord Jesus, please catch my heart up, catch my affections up with what I know my brain and what ultimately the scripture is telling me to do. Because there's typically, it's often been said, the greatest distance in the world is not the distance around the world or from galaxies to the galaxies. The greatest distance in the world is the distance between your head and your heart. 
be obedient at all costs while praying that God would catch up your affections to what you know is right. This is the way we're called to live. Third slide, which was the first slide a while ago. There we go. All right, so you can't see this very well. All those same people are down here at the bottom. And notice what is happening here. Some of those people, what are they doing? The white lines represent their godly pursuit, that they're pursuing obedience, that they're pursuing holiness, all those sorts of things. And again, what does this bottom line represent? It represents who's here today. But notice, out of who is here today, not everyone is pursuing the Lord. Not everyone is seeking holiness. Not everyone is seeking godly wisdom. You've got like this guy right here, this gal right here. Man, she is going totally off the charts toward what? Worldly wisdom. You know what often causes disunity within the church? Is that not everyone in the church is truly saved. Even members. Even pastors. If you begin to pursue the ways of the world, if you can imagine, then every time one of these worldly pursuits crosses line with a godly pursuit, you know what you call that? A fight. A fight. Divisiveness. Why? Because one is not pursuing the Lord, and the other one is. And the way that God does things and the way that the world does things, they cannot coexist. It causes divisiveness, disunity, aggression, slander, gossip, all these sorts of things. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. This is the mentality that happens in so many people. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian are Christians, and not everyone who are members of the church are Christians. So there's a lack of godly pursuits. They pursue their own desires. Uh, there's a lack of humility, a lack of gentleness, a lack of patience. Uh, and, and this is again where we begin to see conflict arising. Now, it's hard to see on here, but this person right here is pursuing worldly things. But notice that there's a white arrow out here that shifts their direction back toward the right purpose. See, God saves Christians too. What do I mean by that? There are some of you who believe that you are and you're not. And God's going to save you. As he did me, 19 years of my life, believing I was saved or trying to work my way to salvation at 19, my dorm room, Jesus shows up, totally changed the trajectory of my life. I grew up in church. I was a good Pharisee. I had scripture memorization, felt boards, you know, Father Abraham, the whole bit, I had it down. And Jesus saved me. Because what I ultimately realized is I wasn't a Christian. I was not a follower of Jesus. I was a religious consumer and Pharisee. Can you understand how this causes disunity? Can you understand why the world, why would they ever want, that's why they don't want to be a part of this. And some of it is beyond our control. I want you to know that. Why? Because we're to welcome people into our congregations. We're to welcome people into the local church. And that means sometimes we even welcome non-Christians. <laughs> it means we'll hire people as pastors and they're not Christians. And so the world is watching this and they're saying, well, everything that's happening inside the church is very divisive and there's disunity and all this sort of stuff. Why would I want to be a part of such a wreck and a mess? 
godly pursuits. We don't want to have this conflict. We don't want to have this disunity. Now, I'm not saying that there's never conflict between two actual Christians. But I want you to get this. Conflict between two brothers in Christ. If me and Jonathan are in conflict with one another, and he's a believer, and he's pursuing after Jesus. He's reading his Bible. He's praying. He's loving his wife. He's loving his kids. All these sorts of things. I'm loving my wife. I'm loving my kids. I'm pursuing Jesus. I'm praying. We may still come to odds at each other, but you know what happens when two Christians who are really Christians get at odds with each other? They don't stop acting like Christians even in the midst of the conflict. Because it may be real conflict, but the way in which you respond to that conflict is going to say much more about your heart and where you are. This is what happens in my marriage. Sometimes I come home, I'm hangry. I, I, I use a, a loud tone with my wife or kids. God convicts me. What do I do? I go back to Laura. Hey, you did nothing wrong. I'm sorry, Ava, you did nothing wrong. I, I'm so sorry. I raised my voice. I'm stressed out, this is going on, I didn't eat, whatever it is taking place. See, you remain in the triangle when that is your pursuit. Why? Because that is what God calls us to. That is pursuing holiness, that is pursuing obedience, that is being forgiving. But if you try to go outside of that, brothers and sisters, you are in, in, in detri- you're just in a dangerous walking issue. And most of the church culture inside of America, why there are divisions, is not over stuff that is inside of the circle. It's in stuff that is outside of it. I know we think it's funny, but churches do still split over the color of carpet and not being able to vote on certain things that they should think happens. All worldly. If we're pursuing Jesus, what? We're going to make decisions in a patient way, in a humble way, in a gentle way, we're going to work together. We're going to think the best of each other. So in, re- in response to this, in a world that loves to draw dividing lines, you and I, if we're in Jesus, we'll bear one- with one another. Literally, meaning this, we're going to put up with each other's junk, flaws, failures. Why? Because we genuinely love Jesus and we genuinely love you. Let me ask you something. If you're a member here at Mission, let me ask you this question. Do you love mission? And I mean it's people, not it's grand facilities. I'm not asking you, do you love how we preach? Though I hope that you do. I'm not asking you if you love our mission, which I hope that you do. I'm asking you, do you love the people in this room? I mean really love them? Do you lay down your life for them? Do you think the best of them? Are your best friends, better yet, is your true family and better family sitting in this room? Paul will use the term bond of peace, which is reflective of his earlier statements as prisoner. We are bound to Jesus but we are also bound to each other. This love and eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit takes effort. It takes dedication. It takes the Spirit. Did you know that, brothers and sisters, this passage doesn't say that you and I can create unity? Guess what? The Spirit has already done that. Like we steward our time, like we steward our money, we're to steward the unity that God has created and placed upon the church. Guess what? We are united in Jesus. And we're to be eager to maintain, to steward that unity. Maintaining unity is not achieved through passivity, but through pursuit. 
We're to be bound to Jesus, bound to each other. Our time, our money, our relationships be, must be maintained, stewarded, and cultivated in order for us to be eager to pursue this unity. So, in conclusion, how are we able to walk in these attitudes? Remember, how humble, gentle, patient, loving, and peaceful was Jesus toward you? That is what we forget. Think about that. How gentle has Jesus been with you? How patient has he been with you? How tender has he been with you? How meek has he been toward you? How, how you know, just loving and patient and all these sorts of things. My, my favorite definition of worship is this, is that worship is a response. That worship is a response. See, worship is the appropriate response of people when they truly encounter and know what God has done for them. This week, we were blown away in our missional community group. So we were talking about holiness and we were talking obedience and we just had this moment and kind of, um, we'll use some Christian knees here, God showed up, like he wasn't already there. You get what I'm saying. And as we were talking about these sorts of things, a member at our church, Aaron Strahan, was, was sitting at the, the, uh, the steward's home and we were talking and we were talking about these very things. And what's interesting about Aaron's life is that two years ago, Aaron, well, he self-professed. This is not something that I'm making up, and I did ask permission for me to share this this morning. Aaron was estranged from his family. Aaron was addicted to drugs and to alcohol. And all of that had led him to be homeless. And two years ago, he walked into a ministry that we're partners with, where some of our guys work at, where some of us volunteer at, called Hope House. And through the midst of Bible teaching and prayer and all these sorts of things, Jesus wrecked Aaron's life to the point two years later where he can be sitting and being a member of a local body who has brothers and sisters who care for him, who are not just his estranged family out here in some make-believe land, but are his real and true and better family. And this man, as many tears are filling with eyes inside this room, as, as, as Aaron is sharing and he's pleading and saying, brothers and sisters, I, when I think about what God has done for me, where I was, where many of my friends and family, where they still are, and I'm running a race that is not toward him, but I'm running a race toward Aaron. I'm running toward alcoholism. I'm running toward addiction. I'm running toward all these things that I want, and yet in God's mercy and his grace, he predestined me. He elects me. He chooses me. He calls me. He saves my life. He does not give me what I deserve. And I was doing the same thing that my friends and family were doing. And yet God's grace was poured upon me. And he saved me. And he said, I've been wrestling through this because, brothers and sisters, I, I can't think of any greater response than to give all of my life in obedience because I realize what he's done, and I don't want to take advantage of that. I don't want to make that cheap, but I want to do everything that brings glory and honor to him because it, he paid a great price. He died for me, I was running a completely different path. And many of those people are still running that path, but for whatever reason, God in his grace and mercy has set me in a new life. Brothers and sisters, from a 
newer believer. God speaks. That is a testimony of understanding the first three chapters so that when we get to all this conduct and holiness, it is not begrudging duty. It is a labor of love. I love my Jesus. I love my God. Look at what he's done. He's chosen me. He's elected me. He's predestined me. He has saved me. I did not deserve it, and yet he lavishly pours out his grace upon me, and I was doing nothing better than the world around me, and yet he so placed his grace on a day dead man and raised him up to new life. What response could I not give but to worship that Jesus? Mission Church, worship that Jesus. Be gentle, be humble, be patient, love, be united together because if we all had that mindset, let it be testimony today to you that if we can grasp that mindset and even the deeper layers of it, we will be a healthy, united, maintaining eagerly the beautiful church that God has given us called mission. And I'm thankful to be a part of this one because I love you. I love Jesus. Let's pray.